I'm Adam Seafew. And I'm Scott Stern. And we're here with another episode of S2D, the Symptom to Diagnosis podcast. This podcast teaches evidence-based strategies for diagnosing common medical symptoms. We begin each episode with a case, unknown to one of us. We then discuss five high-yield features that help to accurately diagnose the cause of the symptom at hand. We then return to our case before finishing up with a discussion of fingerprints, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge pertaining to the week's symptoms. The cases we discuss are drawn from our clinical experience, but because protecting patient privacy is part of our oath, we never discuss actual patients, and most cases are composites. What are we talking about today, Scott? Well, we have waited until the waning days of the fourth wave, but today is finally COVID day. Ah, COVID day. But we're not doing it alone, are we? Uh, Indeed not. (laughs) We have our second guest expert, Dr. Jennifer Pisano. Dr. Pisano is an infectious disease specialist. She is an associate professor of medicine here at the University of Chicago and the interim chief of the section of infectious diseases and global health. She is also the medical director for our antibiotic stewardship program. And despite all that, she decided that she could take the time out to accept our invitation to spend half an hour with us. Welcome, Dr. Pisano. Thank you for having me. So, Jen, we've tasked you to cover a lot in the five points today. We're sort of going beyond our usual focus on diagnosis, and so we're going to spare our listeners a lot of the case discussion we usually do. I am just going to present a composite case, sort of taken from some of the early cases of COVID that we all saw in March of 2020, just so we have a case to anchor on. That sound good to you guys? Sounds great. Okay. So this is a 25-year-old graduate student, originally from Chicago, who is studying in New York, and her program shut down at the end of the second week of March 2020, when it seemed like everything was shutting down. And so she came home to stay with her parents, because, as the magnet on my refrigerator says, Chicago is better than New York. (laughs) Um, About a week later, she came home. She had no sick contacts, and the day after she arrives home, she develops fever, chills, sore throat, headache, and stomach upset. In retrospect, talking to her, she did note loss of smell and taste the day or two before her symptoms came on. She came into the clinic at that point. On exam, she was febrile. She had actually a fever to 102. She was tachycardic, but the rest of her vital signs were normal, normal blood pressure, respiratory rate, O2 sats. Um, Her lungs were perfectly clear. Uh, A nasopharyngeal PCR was done, and she was sent home with the suspicion that she had COVID and told to self-isolate in one room and actually one bathroom in her parents' house. Her PCR came up positive uh, a little more than a day later. Things were much slower then than they are now. And she ended up feeling pretty bad for five days, uh, but then improved. And two to three weeks later, her taste and smell returned. And by that time, about three weeks later, she felt totally fine. She said she felt pretty pretty tired for the days sort of while she was recovering. Interestingly, no one else in her house got sick. So before we move on, I don't know, any thoughts on, on that? Well, this is a good outcome, obviously. Yeah. No intervention, right? Uh, no technology, no steroids, no therapy, and yeah. no one else got sick. Of course, this was before the Delta variant, so right. it might be trickier nowadays. Right. Yeah, and even then it was impressive that the PCR came back in just one day. Yes. Because <laughs> very early we were waiting up to 7 to 14 days, which right. is way outside the window right. you could do anything about it. Right. I do think it's been interesting thinking about you know patients – I've taken care of 
who either, you know, have or have not infected the people who are around them. Um, and then on the other side of things, people who have been like so, so, so careful, and you just have absolutely no idea where they got it from. It sort of argues, you know, just how confusing it is, the infectivity of it, and how we get this, and so on and so forth. So, um, now we're going to leave our case for a few minutes and take a deep dive into COVID. Um, and as I said, we usually really focus on diagnosis, but Jen, we sort of tortured you and just said, come up with five things, whatever you want to talk about. So um, how are you going to start us up? Yeah. So, you know, I think I'll start with diagnosis, but I will preface, you know, these five points is that in COVID, it seems like everything changes weekly. So <laughs> hopefully some of them will at least be still relevant by the time uh, our listeners hear this podcast. Um, so first, I just wanted to talk a little bit about diagnosis, because COVID-19 can present in many different ways, and the majority of cases are asymptomatic. The most specific symptom that people will report is this loss of taste and smell, like your um, patient did in the case that you presented. There are really two phases to this infection, the viral and the inflammatory. And the viral phase, people can have very subtle presentations, congestion, sniffles, or sore throat, or be very, very sick with influenza-like illness, fevers, night sweats, or GI complaints. This phase does not bring people to the hospital, though. It's really when they get shortness of breath or enter the inflammatory phase when they come into the hospital. And sometimes they, you, you know, ask them to think back and they won't even report any symptoms at all. So our threshold for testing does need to remain very low. Do you think of the sort of viral pneumonia that people get as part of the inflammatory stage, or is that something which which usually precedes that? Yeah, you know, it's probably a combination. I know very early in the pandemic, we were using CT scans to diagnose COVID. Right. You know, I think it makes me really reflect on some of the other respiratory illnesses we have. And, you know, even with influenza, how much is virus and how much is inflammation in the lungs? Yeah. I thought that was cool, actually, at the very beginning of COVID, when we were testing everybody, and we were, you know, a little bit behind New York and Washington here in Chicago, and I was amazed at the other respiratory viruses that I was turning up, sort of pre-COVID, but all the, like, metanumavirus and all those things, and being like, huh, this is what I'm seeing all the time, you know? Yeah, I think we're also learning how much of the other viruses people carry asymptomatically, right. um, even influenza after they've already been vaccinated. Right. Right. I just had influenza three weeks ago. And the only reason I knew I thought it was a cold was because I had to be tested for COVID so I could work. Right. And the test was influenza. I'm like in September and I'm not even that sick. I mean, we probably will have a better understanding of all these viruses now. You just want to get out of work. Oh, yeah, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> Let me say one more thing about what you were talking about, which I think is really interesting when you talked about sort of testing thresholds. Right. Because it, it has been true that sort of up to this point, you feel like, well, anything could be COVID. And so sort of you test whatever people come in with, right? You're like, oh, and we'll test for COVID. It'll be interesting because at some point, you know, we won't do that, right? And a GI bug will be a GI bug and you won't be thinking, oh, COVID. And it'll be interesting to see kind of how our practice patterns change. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, earlier today, we were kind of imagining you know, what it would be like if everyone was vaccinated. We probably wouldn't be, you know, right. at this point doing any of that, right. like you were alluding to. So hopefully we can get to that point. But still today, even for people who are vaccinated, essentially for all the respiratory illnesses, just to be clear for our audience, we're still testing essentially everybody with respiratory complaints right now, correct? Yes, absolutely. 
just because we, you know, not all of our population is vaccinated. So we do have to, you know, do a lot to make sure people are isolated and, you know, decrease the chance of transmission. Good. So let's move on to point two. So it sounds like point one was diagnosis. What's your point two? So point two, I'm going to talk a little bit about testing. And we did talk a little bit about that in the case in point one. But there's been a lot of talk about when to send antigen tests and when to send PCR tests. And there's many places that are actually sending them both at the same time. Um, antigen tests are very useful for rapid results when patients are symptomatic. and But they also can be un- unreliable for asymptomatic people, especially post-exposure, when we do really rely on the PCR test as the best option. Um, in many parts of the world, they do use the rapid antigen test as, you know, kind of a screening test, but we should look at this more as a test for how contagious somebody is mm-hmm. um, and not as a test to absolutely say they have COVID or they don't have COVID. Because you could certainly be COVID positive, you know, PCR positive, um, but not shedding a lot of virus. And so your antigen test is negative. Absolutely. If it was very early or very late in your infection, that definitely could happen. How far along is it until people become antigen negative in general? I want, I realize that's sort of a loaded question, but... Um, yeah. You know, I would need to actually look at that. Yeah. I'm not really sure. But usually when, you know, it's day three, four of illness, maybe that the antigen will turn right. up positive. But right. I guess it depends with all this test, like how much virus you're actually carrying in your right. nose, right. what kind of sample it is. Um, and so on. I've been irritated by some of the labs, community labs, which have done when people get tested outside, where you get an antigen test, an antibody test, and a serum antibody test at the same time. I've had people sort of present that to me, and it's mostly been a headache with people who are vaccinated and who come up, you know, spike antibody negative, even though their COVID's negative, and then they're stressed out, like, oh my God, you know, do I need to get revaccinated in the in the pre-booster era, I guess. Yeah, no, and we we still don't know a lot of what to do with these antibody tests because we don't really have clear guidance on what that number of the titer means. Right. So it's helpful if it's really high. It's helpful if it's zero, but anywhere in between is still a gray area. And if it's very high, do you feel comfortable telling patients that they are protected? I feel better about helping them make their own decisions about their risk tolerance. Sure. But yeah, I don't, I don't. You know, it's really hard to talk in absolutes about all, any of the aspects. Good. Okay. So we've done diagnosis and testing. What's next? So the next point is treatment. And hopefully this will become more and more important over the next weeks to months. You know, having a low threshold for testing and rapid testing when symptomatic will allow people to access, you know, early therapies and hopefully we'll have more outpatient therapies soon. Um, Still, the best prevention is the vaccination, and we want to make sure that everyone gets their primary series. But we do have monoclonal antibody therapy available now for people who are at high risk of being hospitalized. So they have diabetes or obesity, um, older age, or their immune system is decreased um, for whatever reason um, that we can give when they're early in symptom onset, but we can also give them if they've had high-risk contacts um, to prevent the development of symptoms, which has been a new development in the past couple months. Often, you know, we'll see people tested way after their symptoms started, so we're kind of out of the window to be able to give these therapies. So it's really important for our patients to be educated about this, as well as their primary care physicians and specialists to know when they can take advantage of these therapies soon. 
So high-risk contact, I'm trying to imagine what that might be. So maybe a transplant patient, somebody who's at very high risk of getting very sick, who got exposed, maybe a family member. So a significant exposure in a very high-risk patient. Is that the case where you might give the therapy even before their uh, PCR is positive? Absolutely. If you can kind of catch them within the first four days of that exposure, that would definitely be an indication. Great. Good. Okay, so that's treatment. I'm I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that next is prevention. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is. Um, so, like I said during the treatment portion, you know, vaccination is the best um, prevention right now for COVID, and we're still doing our, using our layered approach, knowing that our entire population cannot access the vaccine at this point, including children under 12, um, and that some of our fa- friends and family members don't make the vaccine response like they would if their immune system was completely intact. Um, so we do need, while our community numbers are still within the mid to high range, um, need to be masking and social distancing and um, smart about our exposures and, and um, chances for transmission. And that, I guess, I mean, that that was really well put because, you know, I think so much of the angst has been like, when can we stop wearing masks, right? And right, for most vaccinated people, the risk of severe infection is very low. But, you know, the masking is beneficial for the community in general and for just getting to the point where wherever you are, you know, the community transmission is so low that we sort of don't have to worry about it. Yeah, I I agree with all of that. Um, Certainly, we hope people will mask, you know, for each other as much as for themselves and their own family. But we do see breakthrough cases of people who are sick enough that really would regret having it. I mean, it's not just for everyone else. People are sick for a week or two weeks. They may not get hospitalized, although I had one patient recently who was hospitalized with a breakthrough case, but still worth really being thoughtful about it for themselves. Oh, absolutely. And there was a period of time where we weren't wearing masks and we were seeing people come in, you know, really sick with COVID. And we thought just the sheer number of virus particles they were being exposed to was causing those more severe infections. So, you know, it's great if one person wears a mask, but if both parties are wearing a mask, it's even better. You know, I get the common question I get in clinic every time is, is it safe for me to do X? Is it safe for me to do Y? Which gets to your shared decision-making you were talking about before and discussing. I mean, what's safe for one person is a different, everyone has their own risk tolerance, right? And so, Some people ride bicycles, some people don't. Some people ride motorcycles, some people won't, you know. And so it gets to what sort of risk level people are willing to take. But it sounds like the factors they should consider is whether they're vaccinated, of course, whether they're wearing masks, of course, whether they're indoors or outdoors, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And the concentration of people, I guess, and also whether those people are vaccinated or not, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think smaller group gatherings inside when you know everyone's vaccinated is, you know, is one thing. Um, And being outside in a large group, we've heard about, you know, cases spreading at concerts, you know, in when people are really packed together in front of the stage, even though they're outdoors, even though potentially checking to make sure people are vaccinated, we've heard of spread there. So you really have to kind of piece together. And I think these decisions are really personal, depending on kind of what you bring to the table, as well as who you might bring the virus home to. Um, You know, and I think that really, you know, makes people look at things a lot different if they have grandparents they rely on babysitting for if they need to go, you know, work at a hospital or a nursing home. Um, they might look at it, everything a little bit different. Great. 
Okay, let's move on to point five. I, I actually have trouble predicting point five. I, four, I was all over. What do you got for five? Five, I thought was a little bit um, more difficult myself, but I really kind of wanted just to get back to the initial pathophysiology of COVID from the very beginning. You know, the SARS-CoV-2 virus enters the cells via spike protein binding with the ACE2 receptor. And because these receptors are very widespread in the body, we can have different um, systemic presentations of COVID. And many of our therapies do focus on this binding. So it's really important to keep this in mind. Um, we're still learning a lot about the pathophysiology of COVID, including you know, the initial presentation as well as the inflammation and maybe how we can modulate this inflammation to, to save people's lives, really. And again, time will tell on how the interaction with the virus does affect kind of our long COVID group, our long haulers who have symptoms often for months and months and, and many even longer. That's interesting. I, I'm usually the one who poo-poos pathophysiology, but it is really interesting here. And I like the way you say that, wow, you know, it's, it's the fact that this receptor is everywhere that we get symptoms of this virus everywhere. Um, it's not just a respiratory virus. So this is usually the time we move on to fingerprints, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge. But for this episode, we're just going to kind of mix things up, and I think we're going to take advantage of the situation and have Scott and I ask some questions here and try to learn something more. Um, my first question is something that, I, you know, I guess we sort of got into a little bit. Well, maybe not yet. But I've thought a lot about this during the whole morass. You know, I'm really interested, obviously, and have been a little bit dogmatic, you know, over the years about, boy, we need to base all care on randomized controlled trials, right? If you don't do that and use observational studies, you're apt to adopt things which which end up not working when you actually test them, you know, medical reversal, blah, blah, blah. Obviously, in the early days of the pandemic, right, it really made sense to adopt things without good evidence because we were just trying to help people. But I think looking back, it's really interesting that the things that have kind of stuck as far as our care, you know, dexamethasone, vaccines, antibody treatment, the interleukin therapy, you know, those are things which were proven early on with randomized controlled trials. While other things that we just sort of threw at people, you know, plasma therapy, hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, those have sort of proven not to work. There are some things like anticoagulation, remdesivir, that, you know, kind of made sense and we're just sort of figuring out in whom those work. So I don't know. This is one of those questions at a conference where someone just stands up and gives a lecture, right? <laughs> um, but like... When you think of that, Jen, as someone who's thought a lot about this, and you think about like how we treated patients and how we think about future pandemics, I don't know. What would you say about that? It's yeah. like an essay prompt. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you know, it is really interesting um, because, you know, a lot of people say there's many other coronaviruses waiting to jump, you know, from yeah. from animals to humans. And, and this should really just be a lesson on how to get a really nice coordinated response um, together for the next one. You know, drug repurposing was all about, you know, that was kind of the big thing in the first couple right. weeks and months of the pandemic. And, you know, I think we could learn a lot from the recovery trial. You know, we have other adaptive studies open now um, because with crisis comes opportunity and just the sheer numbers of people who are being diagnosed with COVID, you know, there'll be no excuse not to enter everybody into a randomized control yeah. trial in yeah. the future. You know, there's a lot of drug development going on, you know, trying to make the next candidate 
for viral treatment even before we see a, a, the virus you right. know, that's causing it. So you know, I think it'll be really interesting. I also think, you know, when you read a lot about, um, you know, successes in other countries, we have an opportunity <laughs> to maybe take some of this out of the political spectrum and maybe build some trust you know, surrounding um, pandemic response. Um, so I think that'll something that we can, you know, need to work on. I respect your optimism. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's neat to hear, you know, when, when you say like, you know, there's a whole line of coronaviruses, you know, waiting out there. Um, although that is frightening, you know, it's probably true. And it's great to hear you think about sort of you know, this pandemic is setting us up for like, okay, how do we foresee what's coming and how do we respond to that? I have thought so much about, God, you know, imagine if the mortality of this, you know, was 10 times greater or 100 times greater, you know, 100 times greater, right? It wouldn't have been huge. Well, you know, 25% maybe would, that's pretty huge. But you think about the, the like havoc that this relatively mild, infection when you think about it from, I don't know, case fatality rate or infection mortality, like how much this has affected everything. Um, yeah, no, it is really interesting. And and early on, I think the countries that responded um, the quickest and had the quickest successes were the ones who faced SARS right. in the past. So, you know, they right. already did have maybe a chance to develop some of these public health systems, like approaches to contact tracing and you know, potentially the public was kind of more ready to be on the other side right. as well. That's a great point. So, yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how how we move forward, you know. And, you know, one of the other things I often reflect on, too, is, you know, the ability to transmit while asymptomatic, right? So, you know, and that right. kind of went to universal masking. So that was a kind of misconception I think we had from the very beginning, although there are many people all over the world who wear masks on public transportation all the time. So, you know, I, I do think we'll be more successful with the next one. I certainly hope so. Right. It was that asymptomatic spread which really wreaked havoc because you were able to have, you know, population centers that were so highly seated by the virus, basically, before we had any real clue what was going on. Absolutely. I think it's pretty frustrating, though, because even early on with the Wuhan data, it was pretty obvious that there was an asymptomatic phase. And we, you know, it was obvious we were in trouble from the beginning, frankly. Um, you know, you had a disease that had an asymptomatic phase and people were going to travel and it was just going to go all over. I mean, it didn't seem like it was rocket science, but... Anyway, I have a shorter question for you. It's not quite as long as Adam's. Um, so there's lots of misinformation about the risks of the vaccine. And every day I have patients asking me whether it's safe for them to take it. Just today I have somebody who has an inflammatory condition and they're like, is it safe for me to take this? Um, would you say, is there any group that shouldn't be vaccinated? I mean, other than children where we're waiting for approval. Um, are there any folks that you would say, no, you shouldn't get the vaccine? You know, I, I wouldn't say absolutely not up front. I think it would need some discussion, you know. So anything someone told me, I would I would probably say, let's dig into that a little bit more. You know, there are people who have, you know, severe allergies, so anaphylaxis to components of the vaccine or the first vaccine that we would give pause and, and probably not move forward with giving them a second one. Although there are other vaccine products on the market too. So we've been working a lot with our allergists, um, allergy colleagues here to be able to help 
sort some of that out. And they've even given vaccines in their own clinic so people can get them under a highly monitored environment. You know, you mentioned your patient talking about, you know, is there with an inflammatory condition, right. you know, having a concern. And, and there is some theoretical concerns, but you really have to weigh the risk of getting the vaccination with the risk of getting COVID itself. And many people who have you know, autoimmune conditions or inflammatory conditions and are on other agents to decrease their immune system, the scale always tips towards getting the vaccination. So really, unless there's a severe reaction, what I'm hearing you say, and I just want to be clear, unless they've had a severe reaction or a significant reaction to this vaccine or one of its components, not not the flu vaccine or not something else, then you're going to recommend even especially for the immunocompromised patient and for people who've had inflammatory conditions, but basically everyone to get vaccinated. Yes. Is that too strong a statement? There's always, you know, those other little caveats sometimes that people come up with. But yeah, I would say almost across the board, that is a very true statement. I'd like to underline one thing that you said was kind of giving props to the allergist during this, because I've had two patients, one of whom had a real Uh, something which really concerned me. And one concern that I think was maybe, you know, less of a real concern. Um, But our allergists were incredible at sort of dealing with that. And in the person who was really at very high risk of being able to work this person through the process of getting vaccinated. That's fantastic. Yes. And they've been really great too at just giving people the confidence, I think, to, to be able to go forward with it. Um, Something else I've noticed a lot, and Scott, you kind of alluded to this before, is that, you know, I've I've recognized physicians giving different recommendations, not because of different interpretation of the data, but because of, you know, different risk tolerance of the physician themselves. And I guess we always know that when we see a doctor and we're getting recommendations, you know, we're getting somewhat personal recommendations. It's not all database. But I guess this is just so sort of brought it to the fore. I've been particularly annoyed. You know, the New York Times has published these graphs every now and then about like what a, some group of epidemiologists would do. And there's like a subset who are like, I'm never going to a movie theater again. And I'm like, ah, that's ridiculous, you know. Um, but I understand it. Um, and I don't know, as someone who's dealt with this sort of advising, you know, more than me, how have you, I don't know, balanced your own you know, riskiness. I do see you drive a motorcycle without a helmet to work every day. Um, You know, your own kind of risk tolerance with, I don't know, what's really truth um, from the data and and how patients balance that. Yeah, no, this is a really, really difficult one um, because it, it does depend on, you know, people's past experiences, what they're bringing to the table. Again, we were talking about who's living with them in their house and what they could bring home. Um, to those family members and how risky it would be for them to get COVID. And and I do think things change, you know, with the with the variants as well. And, you know, with with each wave, we have some um, some uncertainty. But, you know, I think we're learning more about ventilation. We're learning more about the capabilities of airplanes, you know, and, and talking more about, you know, being actually in the airport as a really risky time compared to being on the airplane. So I, I think all we can do is kind of discuss and be really honest with the people we're discussing with that there is a lot of uncertainty still. And I, I often kind of say, talk a little bit from my own experiences and how I, people, I think people have a good sense of what my own risk tolerance is um, after having these discussions so they can maybe take 
pieces of it. Um, but it, again, it is a really personal decision. Maybe that's why there's been so much sort of confusion with the media is that, you know, media recommendations, it's impossible to be like granular enough for the individual. And I don't know, of course, why we are most useful to people, right? Where you can weigh kind of science and values to make recommendations that you can't if you're trying to appeal to 2 million listeners or something like that. Yeah. I've often, I've found myself too, kind of getting frustrated a little bit at, you know, We've been thinking about this a lot. We kind of try to digest the data as it comes out. And I'll still wear a mask sometimes to set a good example when I don't really think I need to wear a mask anymore at all in those situations um, until the health department can kind of catch up. So it it is tricky business, but, you know, we're all, I think, doing the best we can. I have a question for you on the vaccine. So we talked about how the virus binds using its spike protein. And if I understand this correctly, the different vaccines actually target different aspects or different uh, parts of the spike protein. So one could imagine that having multiple different vaccines would actually allow one to have an antibody repertoire, if you will, against different parts of the spike protein so that as it mutates and changes, you're more likely to be protected. So is there science that tells us we should mix and match these vaccines or what do you think about that? Yeah, so... You know, there, there is kind of an emerging set of data showing there might be a benefit to mixing and matching the vaccines. I think it's hard to separate that from just the data we're learning about maybe one vaccine having provoking a higher um, immunogenic response than another vaccine and how to follow that up. But, you know, certainly there's there could be a theoretical benefit. I think right now it's most important to, to kind of show that mixing and matching vaccines is safe because the vaccine supply in any place can change um, and, and people might not have access to the vaccine that they got their initial dose with. So I think safety now is number one. Um, but, you know, definitely in the future, we might hear more data about the uh, benefits to mixing and matching. So right now, vaccinate everyone, almost. Mm -hmm. Boosters for those who are eligible. And maybe someday we'll start talking about if you've had A, you should get B or so on and so forth. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And it's hard because you need to tease out sort of the, you know, maybe the synergy of two different vaccines with just the boosting effect, which, you know, we know is real, though small. Um, And so, it's almost something that you'd say, boy, you got to have a head-to-head trial for that to actually have an answer. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I have another uh, misconception that's came up early in the literature, and I think it's been put to rest, but just in case the audience doesn't isn't aware of this. So you talked about how the virus binds the ACE2 receptor, and of course, a lot of patients are on ACE inhibitors. And so there was a lot of concern at the beginning of the outbreak when we understood this, that patients on antihypertensives, particularly ACEs and ARBs, whether there was an interference in that, whether it put them more at risk for COVID or less at risk for COVID. And actually, it seems to me the pathophysiology of this is complex, but my understanding is they should just keep doing what they're doing. Can you comment on that? Yeah, no, that it it was interesting at the beginning to kind of think of it, oh, is it protective or could it be harmful um, in the face of COVID-19? But, you know, there's really been no study showing us that there's any benefit to being on an, an, an ACE inhibitor or to not being on an ACE inhibitor. So right now, if you need it for your underlying conditions, you know, talk to your doc and, um, you know, you should continue taking it. 
Great. That would be a good example of where a lot of pathophysiologic hand-waving and wishy-washiness gets us nowhere in the face of actual data. <laughs> I do believe you're referring to the questions I had for you since I was on an ACE inhibitor <laughs> at the time, but you were trying to... He's For those of you who aren't in the room, you can't appreciate the smile on Dr. Sifu's <laughs> face as he asked, as he made that final comment to me. <laughs> So, we hope you found this episode of the Symptom Diagnosis Podcast useful and a bit enjoyable. A huge thanks to Dr. Bassano for willingly accepting our invitation to be our guest, and as it turned out, to willingly accept all of our questions, some of which were impossible to answer. Um, Scott, we're going to have to get some S2D swag to start giving out to our gifts. What do you think? I think that's a great idea. Any suggestions (laughs) of appropriate swag? Um, Maybe, um, what are the things you put cups on? Coasters. Coasters. An S2D coaster? Oh, my God. Okay. (laughs) As a reminder, our textbook, Symptom Diagnosis and Evidence-Based Guide, takes a much deeper dive into how to think about and reason through the diagnosis of medical presentations. Of course, the last edition did not include COVID at all because we somehow did not see that coming. The book is available in print on your handheld device and in a fully searchable mode via the Access Medicine website available worldwide from McGraw-Hill. The music for this, the S2D podcast, is courtesy of Dr. Malin Martinez. Mm-hmm.